Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Somebody's got their speakers on. Is it me? Maybe. Uh, that's why I use a microphone headphones. That sounds a little better. If if I turn my speakers down, I can't hear you. Okay. Um, can you hear us now? Yeah, I turn the speakers down. That you can hear us. Yeah, that's good. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I don't. Sorry about that, everybody, uh, but that's the excitement that we generate here on Spark. It just sets the electronics off and lots of reverb. But welcome to this episode of Spark. Uh, my name is David Udolf. I am a co-host and uh, I'm a psychologist and writer and uh, coach and uh, really excited to be here with Spark tonight uh, with a very, very, very special guest who I'm going to let my co-host, Peter Lawson-Jones, introduce since they know each other a little bit better than I do. So, Peter, it's on you. Thank you, Dr. Day. Um, it's Welcome to our audience this evening that's either watching live or will be watching this on tape. This is a very, very special episode. Just a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm an attorney, a consultant, a member of both actors' unions, a playwright, an acting coach, a former elected official. Uh, but today I'm just an admirer. I'm an admirer of uh, David Crystal. And we're going to call him, since we have two Daves, I might refer to him as DC. And we aren't talking the District of Columbia, we're talking David Crystal. Um, his story is a remarkable one, but he's a remarkable human being. Uh, let's just take a look at a few of the things uh, that he's done. Um, a professional dancer at the highest level who appeared on PBS's great performances and performed with none other than Mikhail Baryshnikov, um, an instructor who was taught at some of the most highly regarded uh, dance studios in the nation, um, the, some of the most highly regarded schools of dance, a humanitarian. This is particularly important. On the front lines, working with those suffering from AIDS, dying from AIDS, comforting them, comforting their families during the darkest days of that crisis in the 1980s. He then went on to become a consultant with Fortune 500 companies and uh, of particular interest to all of us, and we're gonna probably have a question or two about this, consultant for the Top Gun School. Okay, Tom Cruise and, and all. Uh, <laughs> And then for the last 30 years, a ghostwriter, an editor, a book coach. Uh, so I don't think anybody that we've interviewed, uh, David Udelf, has had a more varied and astonishing, eye-popping career than David Crystal. But you know, what he's done, as fascinating as all that is, what he had to overcome to achieve it is the real story. And we're going to get into that. DC, David Crystal, welcome to Spark. Thank you, Peter. And, and thank you, David. I hear that some uh, feedback happening here. 
so I'm going to turn things down on my side. Okay. Um, it's, I've had a, a very varied life and might want to turn that volume down a little bit. I'm sorry. Okay. Is that any better? Yes. 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 Okay. So when you're speaking, I'll turn up the volume and when I'm speaking, I'll turn it down. Okay. <laughs> I'll put this a little closer. Um, the first thing is that my, all the things that I've done in my life are, I didn't plan for at all. Uh, it, it has always taken someone else to suggest to me that, have you ever thought about doing this? And I just knew that was what I needed to do next with my life. So, but Peter alluded to um, some challenges. And uh, my life, and this is unfortunately something that has happened for a lot of people, is my life started off with me being put up for adoption. And I spent the first four years of my life in the foster care system and being shunted around through six foster homes and four adoption agencies. And I was being sexually abused starting at age three. At that time, I also contracted polio. So I ended up in leg braces and crutches and went through the therapy where they put extremely hot towels on your legs that burn like heck. And I did that for a number of years. It was extremely painful. And uh, I was told that I was going to be, you know, uh, totally um, hung up with polio and that my life, I would not be able to do a lot of the things I saw kids doing, like running and playing. And uh, so I kind of consigned myself to um, that kind of life. But then I read an article about Wilma Rudolph, the Olympic track champion. And when I read that she had had polio also, I said, this is my hero. <laughs> I want to be I want to be able to do what she did. How old were you at? How old were you at the time when you read that article? Oh, I must have been about five years old. Wow. Yeah, we were we were living in this tiny little town in Colorado. <laughs> and then we moved when I was nine years old to Fort Collins, Colorado. I and know it well. What was that? I know it well, Fort Collins. Okay. So at the time, this is 1962, there were only about 25,000 people, people. And uh, we arrived in Fort Collins. I saw an ad for a summer gymnastics program. And I begged my parents to please let me take it. And they relented. They paid the $10 you know, fee. And I showed up at the gym with my leg braces on and my crutches. And it was like a movie. The entire place stopped and looked at me. Everything went quiet. The coach came over and asked me, are you sure you're in the right place? And I said, I am. <laughs> I want to do this. And thankfully, he said, OK. And I struggled through that entire summer. It was painful. It was 
humiliating. But by the end of the summer, my left leg had started to straighten out and I could do front rolls and back rolls on my own. It was about a year or so later that I was completely out of the crutches and the um, braces. Kind of like um, that movie, <laughs> Life's Like a Box of Chocolates. <laughs> and I, I never looked back. I was still in a great deal of pain. Um, I, the leg pains and lower back and hip pain that I went through was phenomenal, uh, but it didn't stop me. And I just kept pushing and pushing. And when I got into high school, my senior year of high school, I lettered in gymnastics. Wow. wow. D David, you, you had shared with, with me in a previous conversation that you really didn't enjoy the best of relationships with any of your foster families, but that your this particular family at least had enough faith, belief, um, were at least supportive enough, supportive enough when they said, okay, we'll pay the fee, you have at it. So tell me a little bit about about your relationship with that set of foster parents, and also um, what 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 was it inside of you that allows you to endure the pain, the humiliation, the embarrassment initially uh, when you had started the gymnastic class? Obviously, the other students looked at you with great skepticism. I would think, what was it? What was there? Is inside of you well let me first speak to the relationship i had with my adoptive family i got adopted at age four okay. and uh, amazingly i went to school with all of the foster families kids so i have 19 foster siblings <laughs> <laughs> and that was great what was not great was my adoptive family they turned out to be violent and i got stabbed. I got repeatedly suffocated till I'd pass out. Um, I was beaten to a pulp multiple times. Um, we did not have a good relationship. I, it's, I never bonded with them. They had, my adopted parents had a terrible marriage, constant fighting, I mean, fist fighting. And thankfully there was no alcohol or drugs involved, but they just had a horrible marriage. And me being this troublesome child, <laughs> they um, used me kind of as a, um, a, a battering rant. Well, no, what's the term I wanna use? They, they just pummeled me all the time. I was an easy target. I could not run away. You were the punching bag. And how did, when you, you, you said you were troublesome. Uh, is it, was that, were you saying uh, because of your handicaps or was it because of your behavior or something? What, what do you mean by troublesome? Well, a couple things. One, I had a huge vocabulary. Where that comes from, I have no idea. As a child, I started counseling adults. 
that really disturbed my parents of how I was able to do that. And that I had, where did this vocabulary come from? Then we discovered at age five, I was a child prodigy in piano. <laughs> the, this is really a, a 50s kind of thing is that the next door neighbor has got a piano and the whole neighborhood showed up to see it delivered. We all traipsed into the house and to see the piano. And I walked right up to it and there was Chopin sitting, you know, music sitting up there. And I just sat down and played it. And I had never seen a piano before, had never seen music before. And that just kind of freaked everybody out. And my parents, my adoptive parents then thought, well, obviously I needed to start taking lessons and I was going to end up going to Juilliard and become a concert pianist. So they started pushing really hard on that. That's not exactly what I was interested in. <laughs> um, I also, they, they, my adoptive parents come from a very tiny town in upstate New York farming and their worldview was very, very small. I was just the opposite. I needed to be out in the world. I wanted to meet people. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to, I had this huge curiosity about everything. They found that really hard to handle. And then the last thing was uh, I have a, an adopted sister and she was getting straight A's in school. And I'm an intuitive learner. I just soak things up. I, at the time, I couldn't read something and retain it. So I did horribly in school. And of course, you know, for their time period, you had to do well in school or else you were an embarrassment. And so here I was, this child prodigy, but I was doing terribly in school, huge vocabulary, and I was very independent. <laughs> I'm guessing you must have gotten into some um, arguments with your parents, disagreements, we'll call them, uh, letting them know that you didn't like what they were pushing you in and being independent. Am I correct in that? Oh, nonstop arguments. <laughs> um, and I eventually physically fought back. And of course, just got my crap beat out of me. But um, yeah, I'm a Leo. And the last thing you do is tell is tell me what my life is going to be. And uh, I don't know where that stubbornness comes from. Um, I met my birth family in 2013 and found out about what my birth parents were like. And apparently my birth father was one of those people that just like me, you don't tell him what you're what to do or what his life is going to be. He's was incredibly independent. He was also an extremely violent, murderous man, ended up in prison. And, um, but I got my dance ability from him. <laughs> so the universe is having a good laugh, uh, in terms of, you know, ironies. How did you, how, how and when did you find yourself in the world of dance? And tell, and take us on that journey that led to Barishnikov. Okay, so, when I was still pretty young and I was just getting out of the crutches and the leg braces, I saw the movie Dancing in the Rain or Singing in the Rain. I saw Gene Kelly and I went, wow, I want to be like him. Gymnastics, 
dance, sing, he could do it all. And I want to be able to do that. So I kept pushing and doing gymnastics. I got into track. I did tennis. I was in really good at touch football. Uh, it turned out I could really jump high. And I just kept pushing myself. I realized that I'm extremely competitive. And I had to be better than anybody else because I had been made fun of by my parents. They used to stand me up in front of a mirror with just my underwear on and laugh at my body and my legs because they were so crooked. And my adopted sister joined in with that. And so I, my self-esteem was so low, I somehow had to survive that. So I became competitive. I had to outdo everybody. So um, that worked in my favor for a long time. And one of the things I did was I got involved in theater. And it turned out I have a singing voice. So I was doing community productions and my, uh, my current partner, whom I've known for 52 years, was in a production of Hello, Dolly. And he called me up and said, we need dancers in this production. You're the only dancer I know. And so I went and um, joined the production. I was the only dancer. <laughs> and one night, the director pulled me aside after rehearsal and said, uh, what do you do your third year of college? Because I had already done almost two years in the music department, realized I had no discipline or love for music for being a concert pianist, so I quit. And uh, so she said, well, you're going to do your third year of college. And I said, I have no idea. Have you ever thought of being a dancer? And I looked at her like she was from Mars. Dancer? <laughs> she said, yes, you've danced in every production I've ever seen you in, and you're better than anybody else. Go over to Colorado State University and check out the dance department. So I did. And they went, a man. <laughs> as you know, the dearth of men, and gave me a full tuition scholarship, and I enrolled and everything. And shortly after joining, they said, you don't belong here. You've got a body designed for dance. You need to move to New York City. So I washed dishes for a summer in a restaurant and saved up my money. And with $500 in my pocket, I bought a bus ticket and headed to New York. <laughs> Just like that. That's how that got started. So once you got to New York, what was that like? That transition, that adjustment? Were you doing the jobs that artists tend to do to make a living until they get their first big break? And and, and, and what was your first big break? And well, no stop. I'm sorry, Peter. I was teasing you. I said, and don't stop the story till you get us to Barishnikov. <laughs> so when I got to New York, I got my ass kicked because in tiny little Fort Collins, I was a big fish. I got to New York and there, as you can imagine, are extraordinary dancers. I couldn't compare. But I knew a dance company there called Theater Dance Collection. One of the founders of that company is from originally Denver. And she had five sisters. One of those sisters I had done the Fantastics with in Fort Collins Dinner Theater. 
And so I contacted them and they said, oh, well, you know, why don't you come to class and everything? So I did. And they said, well, we're going to be doing this production. You're just right for doing this part. So I started working with them. And there was, I did, I worked 11 jobs that first year in, in New York, including being a supernumerary at the Metropolitan Opera House. And um, I was introduced to this famous dancer by the name of Emily Frankel. Her husband is John Cullum, the Broadway and movie star. And their son is now um, an actor. He was in Star Trek. And I used to babysit him. <laughs> but um, Emily asked me to manage her dance studio. And um, she asked me to also be a rehearsal director. So basically just play the music when asked to play the music and turn the music off when it needed to be turned off during rehearsals. So she was rehearsing um, a wonderful piece by Norman Walker, and Norman was there. And he asked me, well, what, do you, what are your plans? Do you want to be a dancer? You know, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working 11 different jobs to try to survive this really expensive town. And this is 1974. And um, he said, why don't you come audition? I'm the head of the dance department at Adelphi University. So I went and auditioned, and I got a two-year full tuition scholarship. Once again, I got my butt kicked. <laughs> After one semester there, the way the system, uh, the school was set up is that at the end of each semester, you get a review with all your teachers. And pretty much whether you got a good review or a bad review, you came out crying because it's an intense situation <laughs> with all your teachers sitting right there in front of you and reading you well my review was scathing they hated me well one teacher spoke up um, sheila thank god for sheila she said i know that david is a total pain in the ass but i can tell he's got what we're all looking for so why don't we put him on probation for one more semester? And if he cleans up his act, then he can you know, stay on for another year. Well, I took pity on myself and ran all the way home to my apartment and cried my eyes out. Everybody hates me, the world, nobody loves me, yada, yada. And I went back to Colorado for Christmas and met with my partner, Richard now. And he said, well, you know what your problem is, is that you are your biggest obstacle in life. Come again? <laughs> and he explained what he meant. And I realized I was holding myself back. My ego, my, that need to be better than anybody else, was getting in the way of learning to work with other people and listening, especially to my heavily experienced teachers who have this world of knowledge laying it, you know, to give me. And I was so caught up with myself, I wasn't taking it in. What did you do? I'm sorry so, to interrupt, but you said you were a pain in the ass and that stuck with me. What did you do? If we had been there, what would we have seen that made you a pain in the ass? Well, I didn't listen to teachers. I was disruptive in class. 
um, you couldn't tell me anything. My ego was always up front. So if you gave me yeah. some kind of um, critical assessment, I took it as criticism. And if you criticize me, I ignore you. <laughs> well, that's the way I used to be. So they, all the teachers found me very difficult to have in class. You know, that's, you, the story you're sharing reminds me a little bit of myself when I first started acting in, in college. And I didn't take criticism as well as I've learned to um, for a host of reasons. I think one, I was, when somebody offered criticism and a critique that was accurate, I was mad more at myself for not having figured that out first before that before the instructor or the director of the show did. Uh, but that even though the person I was really disappointed in was myself and and I shouldn't have expected that I would have known all the nuances of acting at that tender age or how to play a certain scene. But that uh, lack of, uh, of openness to criticism was read by others as being a bit difficult, not as easy to not easy to direct. Somebody who doesn't accept criticism gracefully and filter it out and apply the lessons that have just been shared. Well, it sounds like both of you have something in common, which is a single-mindedness. And that can get that can get in the way a little bit, uh, you know. But Peter, uh, but uh, uh, DC, I'm calling you DC, to not confuse you with me. Um, but you know, you 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 not only had a single mindedness and a, and an ego, but you also had resilience. That all that early life experience built two things: single mindedness. And a resilience, and 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 that kept you going, even though your ego tried to get in the way. But anyway, I'm sorry we interrupted your story. So, well, the, the thing is, is that as you point out, that resilience, um, that drive that I had, was really a survival mechanism, because I had been so heavily criticized and, and verbally and emotionally abused by my adoptive family that that was those were the tools that I used to get through so when the teachers told me I was arrogant <laughs> yeah I was I was very arrogant didn't listen knew better than anybody else and um, I just didn't take criticism well at all like you Peter so um he, he's still that way oh. peter i'm sorry peter's ignore still him. that way ignore him <laughs> but so no what i understand that was when i got back to adelphi university that next semester the what i heard more than anything else from everybody was the evil twin went away and the good twin came back because I had done an about face. That semester, uh, the performance that we did, the school performance, 
that is the first time that I felt like I actually was a dancer. That I was starting to actually inhabit the whole concept of a dancer, you know, so that every fiber of my being was that. So I graduated, I got asked into a lot of companies and I decided to join the Mayo Donnell company. And I really felt that that was artistically a better fit for me than Martha Graham or Paul Taylor. And, um, it, it, what, what was it? What was it ever made? I'm sorry. What, what, I'm just curious. What was it about that dance company that you thought was, uh, you were more compatible with than Martha Graham, for example, what, what was it about the style of dance that, um, that each of those studios represented and, uh, put out to the, for the public consumption? Well, when Paul asked me into his company, I looked at the other male dancers. They're all truck drivers, these big, strong, muscular bodies. And I was this thin guy, you know, barely five foot 10, thought I will break my back <laughs> trying to do, do his choreography. So I turned that down. And with Martha, she has, let me, let me put it this way. Mae O'Donnell was one of Martha's stellar dancers in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And what appealed to me about May as opposed to Martha was that May looked at you as a dancer and brought out amazing qualities in you that were about you as a dancer, as an artist, and then capitalized on that with her choreography. Hmm. Well, for an independent person, <laughs> that worked beautifully for me. So I, I am so glad I joined that company and was with them for six years. Peter, uh, David uh, Crystal, I'm not talking to myself here. Um, maybe I should be. But what years are we talking about here? Was this the 60s, the 70s, the 80s? What years are we talking about? I graduated from Adelphi in 1977 and, and immediately went into the Mayo Donald Company. Okay. So I was with them um, for six years. Okay. Meanwhile, um, I, I think this happened. I think this happens for a lot of artists is that you reach a point where you realize that you've gone as far as you can go and you need other horizons to um, step up to and, and try to um, incorporate or go beyond your understanding of who you are as an artist. And so that's when um, I was asked to teach the male apprentices at American Ballet Theater at the time when Barishnikov was the artistic director. Ooh, wow. So that's when I began working there. I did that for only a couple of years. At the same time, I was asked to teach at the High School for Performing Arts. So I did that and it, that was wonderful and horrible. <laughs> um, some of the students there 
had extraordinary talent. And my wish for them was that they finish their school and at least get a degree, you know, a high school diploma, and then get out there in the world and, and you know, travel. But to also remember that they have a brain and to explore other aspects of life because they weren't going to be in the dance field the rest of their lives, most likely. I knew that about myself. And I had looked around and I saw so many dancers who were so myopic that all I really knew was dance. They didn't know about science. They didn't know about history, even dance history. They didn't know about, you know, so many other things going on in the world. I had to. I'm just this curious person. What's that? And what's this about? And let's travel. Let's meet people. So whenever I went on tour, my joy was in getting out into the public and meeting people and talking with them. Even if I didn't, we didn't understand each other language-wise, somehow we did. And I got to learn about them and learn about other cultures and how they work as opposed to American culture. And I, I just, I want to know it all. <laughs> and um, so I try to impart that to students, either at American Ballet Theater, Alvin Ailey, uh, the O'Donnell Studio at the High School of Performing Arts, Joffrey, to, to become a, a 360 degree person as much as possible because from the majority of us we don't our whole life is not going to be about dance something's going to happen your body's going to give out you may injure yourself you may get bored decide you don't want to be a dancer anymore it's too hard you know and it is a hard life what you put your body through is tremendous and eventually it's going to catch up with you so what are you going to do then? And people said, well, why don't you choreograph or, you know, teach, or, you know, you know, have a dance company. I don't want to do that. There are other things. I want a bank account for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and there are other things in life to explore. I just got to check out. So what happened was, in 1981, I was doing mass at the Kennedy Center with Leonard Bernstein, and my back was hurting. And like a good dancer, I ignored it, because something's always hurting, hurting, and you just have to dance through it. And when I got back to New York, I went right into rehearsals with the O'Donnell Company for performances at, um, oh, I can't, who does Shakespeare in the Park? Um, a public theater? Public theater? Yeah, yeah. And um, in rehearsal, I um, hurt my back, seriously. Then I went to do a photo shoot for the New York Times and did this one move. And my spine twisted in three directions and my sacroiliac tilted and I severed a whole bunch of nerves. Oh. And the doctors told me, well, kid, uh, that's the end of your dance career because you're not, never going to walk again. You're going to start out as a paraplegic and end up a quadriplegic. And I said, not my story. 
And they gave me the business card of a therapist because they said I was obviously in denial. And I just said, and I won't use the language I use, so I said, you have no idea who I am. They wanted to fuse my spine, all this stuff. And I just, nope. So I did Pilates for a year, learned to walk again. I danced for four and a half more years because of doing Pilates. So if anybody's listening and you're wondering about Pilates, I personally found it to be a lifesaver. And um, I went on to dance with the Joyce Trister Company, toured all over, all over Europe, North, Central, and South America with them and had a fabulous time. But then the day came when I tore my right Achilles tendon and that ended my jumping ability. And I was performing at the uh, Santa Fe Opera House in New Mexico. And I said, you know what? Cushy job, great pay, beautiful place. Let's end on a high note. Instead of, you know, that proverbial hook where somebody comes along and says, you really shouldn't be dancing anymore. <laughs> and so um, two weeks after retiring from dance, after my last performance of Deflator Mouse at the Opera House, I was at a wedding and uh, this person came up and started talking to me. I had no idea who she was. And um, turned out she worked for a computer-based training company. And uh, we were talking. She said, how fast do you type? I said, well, about 130 words a minute. She said, well, that's from my piano. You know, that dexterity, that retention is there. Um, is, is this kinesthetic response, you know, response. So she said, we're hiring, come on in. I had, I was scared to death of computers. I was afraid to touch them. I thought they'd explode or something. And, um, two weeks later, I was hired. <laughs> and I was now in the field of computer-based training. Yeah, but before that happened, two things. You told me, share with me, that you could jump higher than Barishnikov because of your <laughs> gymnastics training. So t talk a little bit about that. But wasn't it also during the 80s? When was it that, again, you were working with those AIDS patients and their families? When did that happen? Was that during the 80s? Well, uh, well, well, well. 1980 was when I was at, um, 79 and 80 is when I was at American Ballet Theater. And um, he and I would challenge each other. So gymnastically, I could do things he couldn't do. Of course, he could do stuff I couldn't do. <laughs> and it was just a little competition thing. It was a lot of fun. But um, are there any videos I, of that? Are there any videos of your competitions? Nah. <laughs> no, that, that was all in the studio. Okay. But um, in 1981, 1980-81 is when the gay cancer showed up. And amazingly, three of the first per people ever diagnosed with it lived in my building in New York. And I don't know what possessed me, but I knew I was safe. And I just started taking care of them. And I thought, well, I need to learn about this. So I went down to the Gay Men's Health Crisis Center to take 
classes and listen in and um, attend groups. And then I went, also went over to the LGBT Center to get involved there. And um, people started saying that, you know, you, you really are really, you're really good at listening and responding and validating and all this other stuff. Um, you ought to think about becoming a therapist. Okay. <laughs> so I started attending more groups and I started facilitating and um, I just got so deeply involved with supporting all these individuals on death and dying issues. So I worked with them and their families on death and dying issues. And um, when I was doing, still in computer-based training field, I got um, transferred to San Diego. So I got moved there, opening up a new office. And um, I immediately, the second day I was there, I went over to the LGBT center to find out what kind of holistic health program they had going on for people with HIV AIDS. They didn't really have anything. So I got deeply involved in that, helped co-found their AIDS response holistic health program. And I just started facilitating groups of all kinds, uh, mostly living well, um, living with HIV. And there's a lot to deal with there and still dealing with death and dying issues. Meanwhile, I uh, got hired to work at Top Gun <laughs> on a, a project. Um, so I was leading the development team, had about 30 people working under me, and we worked on a course that would teach the uh, Top Gun flyers how to fly the F-14A and D jets. And um, I also did a project for North Island Naval Station, um, and I'd done other projects for like 9X Corporation, American Airlines, um, Halliburton Oil Company, stuff like that. What kinds of things were you teaching uh, at Top Gun School? Because I don't think you've ever flown an F-14, but what, what specifically were you teaching there? I've got to believe it has to do with the mental part of flying. It actually had to do with every aspect of flying. So um, we had subject matter experts that we worked with, and then we had course designers. And I just oversaw the whole thing. And, gotcha. Um, when um, only one specific person with a certain security clearance could work on um, tactical, and I was also had that clearance. So when the base admiral came in to have a dog, a dog and pony show, I had to give that and then I got to show him tactical, which is what he was interested in seeing. And um, I'm the kind of person that, again, I soak things up. So I don't necessarily have to read something, but I just am listening to what's going on around me. I'll see something, I just take it in. So I was able to step him through all this stuff without having gone through all this training. Um, and there are other people like me. We had other people on staff like that too, just amazing. Um, and even more technically savvy than me. 
I, I've got to believe that you have a, a, an organizational skill in order to oversee 30 people and something like that. There's got to be, could you could you speak to that a little bit and how your resilience and your single-mindedness and your ego maybe contributed to you being a leader and an organizer? One of the things that I can say came directly from dance was learning how to work with other people. Not everybody can be a star all the time. And when you're in an ensemble company, everybody's moving in and out of that position of being seen. But you have to learn to live with that. And if you can't, then you don't belong in that company. If you want to be a star, then, you know, head to Broadway, audition for, you know, Broadway shows and become the dancer or, or lead or whatever. But an ensemble company, you have to learn not just how to work with people, but you have to learn patience, compassion. You have to put your ego aside and, and understand that every person you're dealing with brings something different to the table. What is that thing and how can it be capitalized to make them stand out as a dancer and then to work with the ensemble? So because of that, um, I was always pegged to be the liaison between the dancers and management. Then working in the AIDS field, I really had to learn to listen and learn to listen deeply. You know, what is the subtext that a person is really speaking to? How do you get a person to speak to that if they're feeling vulnerable or unsafe or scared? Um, and so learning how to do that, when I came to uh, being in computer-based training, within three months of joining that computer-based training company, I was put in charge of a project <laughs> and I, oh my God, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I had learned how to work with people and to support them to do their best. And I seem to be pretty good at mediation. <laughs> so when there were problems, you know, egos clashing for whatever reasons, I could step in and work those things out so that we could continue working as a team and that people felt they were being supported, they were being seen, they were being heard, and that whatever the issues were, they were being addressed, not just, oh, you know, put aside, you know, say, yeah, yeah, I get it, and then forgotten. No, they were addressed. So after years of that, when I got to Top Gun and having all these people, it was just, okay, we have more people, but they're still human beings. They have needs and wants. And um, okay, so yes, I have all this hierarchy over me and I have no problem biting them if need be. <laughs> I've stood up to many a boss, but I do it in a way that is, is non-confrontational. And I try to help other people not to be confrontational, to still, you know, express themselves, but do it in a way that is not attacking, that is not blaming, that is open, um, so that we can all join in the conversation. 
And that's not how you were as a youth. <laughs> you learned to do that over the years to, because you, as you described yourself as a youth, <laughs> you were, you were <laughs> confrontational. Uh, so that's really what, what, what was the what was the evolution of that? Would you say? Uh, I mean, I think you've given some parts to it, where you went from being confrontational to learning how to confront in a more constructive way. I had some great examples of how not to do it. Uh, yeah, you sure did. And like I said, I. Um, I soak things up, you know, I'm, I have the ability to listen to three conversations at once. So I really know how to facilitate groups so I can listen to two other conversations going while I'm talking directly to you without you feeling that I'm not being present to you. Hard to do, but when I, um, I got hired by Tony Robbins in 1994 so as the director of his creative department. Wow, I learned so much from him and others on uh, really, well, one, how to be present, truly present to somebody. Because I worked with Deepak Chopra also. And I thought, wow, these people you know, really know how to zoom or zero in on you as an individual. I thought, well, how Tony was so demanding. There were so many things going on. How can I zoom in and still do all this other stuff? <laughs> so through a lot of practice, I learned how to listen to multiple conversations at one time while still focusing on what I was doing, whether it's a computer or a person. What would be one piece of advice you'd give to listeners about what's the key element to being present? really in the moment, because that is crucial to success. What would you identify as for you, or if you're giving somebody advice, what is that key element to being present? For me, it's eye contact. Well, one thing I've I, learned, I'm sorry? For me, it's eye contact, because I work, I do, I'm a psychologist, eye contact, focus. I tell people in this moment, you are the most important thing in the world right now. But for what you do, what is it that you would give as a key to being totally present? And, and DC, be, before you answer that, I found that during my years as an elected official, what was, what was key for me, particularly because I so often found myself in rooms where everybody was vying for my attention, to at least during the time that I was speaking with the person make them feel that their conversation alone, their issue, their problem, their wants, and their need was the only one that mattered. And generally, I would maintain that focus until somebody almost physically rested me, pulled me away into another conversation. So that person felt that they had my full undivided attention and that they were valued. So I'm just curious that along the lines of what Dave uh what was your approach? What, what, what was essential to you to be able to make people feel that they mattered? And being present, being present and in the moment. What I have learned is that people are people. I don't care who you think you are. 
And this is after working with a lot of well-known people, I mean, some really big names, who think they are on a pedestal and that they're God's gift to the world. And then I get to see them be just like any other human being. They have their foibles. Uh, they have their not-so-great qualities. Uh, I've seen people be nasty to other people. So what I've learned is that each person I deal with, I want to focus on heart to heart. So that means in order to do that, I have to look at them just as you were saying, Dave. Look at them right in the eye. Forget all the distractions going on around you. Yes, I can hear other things going on, but I'm looking right at that person and listening. There, if someone is talking and you're truly listening, when you come back to them with something they've said, they know that they are being acknowledged and validated. So that gets to the value that you were talking about, Peter. People want to feel valued in life. They want to feel understood. Well, what we're going through right now in our world, we see so little of that occurring. So I take it upon myself that when I'm dealing with people is be there now with them. I don't care if it's an individual or a group, be there now. Nothing else matters. Just as you were saying, Peter, nothing else matters but that person, that topic that you are discussing. And then again, it's when they hear you um, come back with something that they've said, or you give a recap, they know that you're there with them. And it, it's not phony. That's being real. And that's what people are looking for is realness in the people they meet. Because look at what's happening with social media. How real is that? You know, I have a real problem with social media because there, it's, there's a quote I read recently. People are so upset. Um, people are so fake that they're now upset when they hear the truth. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you when you look at people who brag about having thirty thousand Facebook friends but no friends in IRL in real life, that kind of says a lot to where we are. A, a couple of things, a, a comment, and then a question for you. I want to return to your work with AIDS patients, those dying from AIDS. Um, you know, my kids have often because they know I'm at a lot of receptions where you have to engage in cocktail party, cocktail conversation. They ask, dad, what is, what is it you do? How do you make the connection? I said, the one thing I know, and when you said every, all human beings are like in terms of strengths and vulnerabilities and fears and anxieties. The one thing I also know is that every human being has an interesting story. And if you ask enough questions, you will find out what that story is. And frankly, that will engage you in the conversation and you will pepper them with questions and they'll go away thinking, why? My, what a splendid human being. What a, a minch that guy was. And, and it's because you listen to them and you let them tell their story. Let, let me ask you, um, you know, all three of us are baby boomers and arguably there are more years behind us than ahead. You speak were for your, speak for yourself. 
Well, I know, Dave, you're going to – I know your age, so I know you're going to live to at least 150, so more years are ahead for you than maybe that's, for the rest. That, that, that's, that's right. <laughs> but uh, as we get older, we have to grapple with and face our mortality. Tell me what you learned how you feel about the inevitable as a result of working so closely with people who were in their final stages of life and probably knew it. There are two aspects uh, to this. Um, when I'm dealing with an individual who knows that there's only one direction they're going, their family knows that individual has only one direction they're going, and that is leaving this earthly plane. Then it's it. What I find helps is to come back to that person's story, just as you were saying, because we all have a story. Good, bad, and different, boring, whatever. We have a story, and what I've done with families is help them to bring out the beauty of that person's story, the person who's going to be making their passing for them so they know that they are loved and they are appreciated. And then for the family members to know that they are giving from their heart to this individual. So again, it's that heart to heart thing that I talked about earlier. That connection is what so many people are missing now. It's all about what's happening externally trying to survive all the stuff that's going on. So when you get to the point of, we know you're going to die, that your life was not in vain, which a lot of people seem to think. There are regrets, you know, and we've all heard about the top six or 12 regrets that people have when they're dying. And to help them understand that there is actually nothing to regret. And what can you tell someone that you either um, have a conflict with or that you feel really close to, that you absolutely adore? What can you tell them that will deepen your heart connection? Forget the rest of the stuff. Be present to that individual right now. You wouldn't believe some of this the things that happen when you do that with an entire family in a room with a person who's in a bed who is not going to be with us much longer. The tears, yes. The joy, the release, the relief, the uplift that happens. And then to hold a person in your arms when they actually take their last breath. I have delivered two human babies in my lifetime. I had the same feeling delivering a baby as when I was holding somebody as they were making their passing. It was like I became expansive. And I want, I would love for other people to experience that when a person leaves. And it's happened many a time with people that family are like, oh my God, I had no idea. Now I'm one of those people that my spiritual belief is that we live multiple lifetimes. And I've had 
past lives come through me that answered a lot of questions as to why this life has gone the way it's gone. So um, I don't necessarily impart that to, to other people unless they bring it up. When they ask a question like, what do you think's on the other side? I ask you, what do you think is on the other side? I bet you actually have some knowledge of it. And then let them speak to it rather than me. I don't want to expound to them. I don't want to try to convert them or convince them or anything. But my joy, my love of life and love of human beings, as troublesome as they are, <laughs> I want to convey that to them to let them know I'm with them and that their family is with them, their friends are with them. And that could be such a challenge. As you mentioned, people can be difficult. And that's what I do for a living. I work, I'm a clinical psychologist and, and that ability to, we got we could probably spend another hour talking about patience. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, we're running, we're running out of time a little bit here. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, anything that you would, uh, any message that you'd like to get across in wrapping things up tonight, a message that you'd like to leave, you've already left so many messages, but maybe there's a, an umbrella message you'd like to leave. And, and, and DC, before you answer that question, give you a couple more seconds to think about it. Two things. Number one, I have been there at the time. I was there with my mom when she passed. I was there the night before several close friends of mine passed. I was there when all three of my children came into the world to cut the umbilical cord. And um, those are absolutely sublime and transcendent moments without question. And I just want to say, I'm, I'm so happy that a couple of months ago, the Code M magazine asked you to interview me because <laughs> I felt we established such a wonderful bond and I was so impressed. I mean, who who overcomes polio and paralysis to dance with Barishnikov? I mean, who does that? Just you, Deese. And, and, the, and the other thing I want to add to that that I've been thinking about, you have reinvented yourself so many times. Uh, we never really talked about that, but you've reinvented. You talked about leaving different lives in after this life. You led about 45, 50 lives in this one in life. This life alone. Well, yeah. and, and you know, Dave, when, when DC and I had our conversation a couple months ago, we stumbled upon a basic maxim by which both of us lived to some extent. We asked the question, that we say that was great, but what's next? I remember our conversation, and clearly, Dave Udelf, as you pointed out, DC has consistently asked himself, "This has been nice. Dance has been wonderful, but what's next? Working as a computer consultant has been wonderful, but what's next? Now he's a ghostwriter and an editor and a book coach, but I know he's already asking, what's next?" I might not be in as high of a you know, doing some of the, I've never danced with Boryzhnikov. I probably would have killed him if I tried to do that, but uh, you don't want to see me dance. Uh, but, you know, that's always my question to myself. 
what's next? Getting excited about what's next. Maybe not on the kind of plane that you're on, but uh, I get excited. I'm still getting excited. And look how old I am, everybody. That's, well, I that's still the get key, excited. That's the key to staying youthful. I'm absolutely convinced of that. As long as you keep asking the question, what what's next? And I think that what's next is the grave. Then you will continue to have a joie de vivre and an effervescence uh, that will make you the delight of anyone who happens to be in your presence. But um, Dave Udelf asked you a question to if there's something you'd like to say to wrap up or another ultra uber transcendent message. Well, to, to answer Dave's, uh, well, both of your questions is that what I would say to, to anyone is that, yes, ask what's next that feeds your heart and soul. It's not about being competitive with the rest of the world. It's about you seeing a new version or vision about yourself that, again, feeds your heart and soul, then go out and do it to the best of your ability. Learn from it. And it may not be, you know, don't have an end product in mind. Just go for the journey. That's beautiful. Couldn't agree with it more. Amen. And by the way, Dave, one final note I want to tell you, because you do book reviews and you write, and I loved your comment about social media. And I think that you and I should team up to write the Bible, rewrite the Bible, and add social media as an extra plague and stick it right there in the Bible. I'm willing to do all kinds of collaborations. <laughs> Anything that will help uplift humanity. There and, you go. And, and I think the two of you would be a great team because DC, as he's told us, had learned how to play in the sandbox with others. Oh, yeah, you, you got to learn how to play in a sandbox if you're going to play with me because that's all I play in as a sandbox. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you. Yep. This has been just as I thought it would be absolutely splendid conversation. Um, we could easily talk with you for hours upon hours and never grow weary or tired. But our engineer always says, uh, make it about an hour, maybe 65 minutes. And then no matter how well it's going, you know, we'll, we'll invite you back for a, a dialogue with David Crystal 2.0. So we look forward to that. I'm all for it. David, thank you. I can't thank you enough for a great hour. You've, uh, you've, uh, I don't know about our audience. I don't know about Peter, but I know for me, you've expanded my existential being. So thank you for that. Well, and that's not an easy thing to do for him or anybody. So, but, but David's so right. And we just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, happy holiday season, as well as all those who ultimately watch and benefit and learn from this particular bit of dialogue that we've engaged in, this discourse that we've had this evening. Uh, I couldn't have invested an hour in a better way than uh, sharing it with, uh, with both of my Daves. An hour, Peter. <laughs> and thank you both. And thank you to all those who are listening and happy holidays. Happy holidays, happy holidays everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye everybody. Take care. Good night.
Thank you.